joined now on the line by the Head of Corporate Affairs at IBEX, Siobhan Masterson, and the Executive Director of Amnesty International Ireland, Colin McGorman. Guys, thanks very much uh, for joining us this morning. Slightly curtailed newspaper panel this morning, but I think people will understand the circumstances uh, that we're in. Colin McGorman, we'll start with yourself. Just any thoughts on what you might have heard from Eamon Ryan in the last few minutes? Yeah, interesting, Gavin. Good morning to you. Uh, I mean, it's it's on so many levels uh, just the most fascinating, bizarre time ever, isn't it? I mean, we're in the middle of the largest uh, um, uh, health and public finance and social crisis that the state has ever faced mm. without a government. And at the same time, we've come out of an election where it was very clear that people said, above all else, they wanted change. And it looks like the big change that we're going to get is that the two parties who've dominated politics uh, for most of the history of the state will be will be back in government, but in government together. And that's the significant change. I have a lot of sympathy for the position that the Green Party are, are in on many levels. I mean, Pat Rabbit's writing about it in the Business Post this morning. Uh, he makes the point that three months ago, we wanted a government to change. Now we're prepare, prepared to settle for whatever government we might get. We just want it to be durable and fair the latter a concept that is in the eye of the beholder. I don't think anybody knows what it is that we want or what we're prepared to settle for right now, because I think so many of us have just been focused on getting through this particular crisis and, and trying to stay calm in the face of this massive disruption to life as it normally is, that that, that it's impossible to know um, what we want, never mind to discern what the public at, at large want. I must say that I did in the in the in the early stages of all of this uh, I was struck by how the Green Party were being attacked for suggesting that a national government was a way forward and that building consensus and setting aside normal politics in the face of a challenge like this might be the right thing to do. I think a lot of people might have thought that was also appropriate. Mm. Um, but then equally, you know, as, as, as Eamon was talking about, when we look at the, the, the climate crisis uh, um, and uh, the immediate risk that that is, it would be unthinkable, I think, for the Greens to step back and not be part of uh, being in government to try to resolve that particular crisis. Talk about a rock and a hard place. Um, his measured approach to this, I think, was the thing that came across most in all of this, the care that's been taken to try to insofar as it's ever possible in these circumstances to protect the, the process and to, to take care of the process because it's... I mean, you can only imagine how difficult a negotiation this will be, given the parties involved and, and, and their historic relationships. Yeah, and not only that, but the fact that they all ran on, on uh, manifestos, which are now completely gone out the window because none of them are, are in any way affordable if the country is going to be 30 billion in the red this year. Uh, Siobhan Masterson, uh, good, good morning to you. Uh, what did you make of the call for there to be, again, some sort of dialogue between groups like your own or, or ICTU to try and figure out some sort of common path forward, at least in the business sector? Hi, Gavin. Morning, Colm. I uh, hope you're doing well. Um, yeah, so so interesting interview there with Eamon and I think a couple of points on some of the areas that he discussed. Um, firstly, I think the economic crisis is now dwarfing what was a health crisis and that's manifest across the, the newspapers today. All of the commentary, uh, bar a few uh, articles, is around what's happening in business, what's happening to jobs, how do we mm. get people back to work, the childcare issues. Uh, and so they're really big decisions. And Eamon discussed a lot of different uh, areas, particularly on the social dialogue model that you raised. I mean, this is something that IBEC was putting forward before the crisis. So it was something that was very much uh, an underpinning of our uh, general election campaign when we were trying to influence the party manifestos. And when we talk about the social dialogue model, really what we're looking for is a kind of a well-functioning mechanism in which all stakeholders, stakeholders, so whether that be business, unions, and other stakeholders in society can engage with government in a meaningful way um, on kind of the, the public policy responses needed. 
And we were putting this forward when when challenges around housing, uh, the environment, health existed. So even before this crisis, we had called out the need for this. And obviously now something like this kind of mechanism is more important than ever, in my view, uh, something really strong that can deal with the um, long term societal issues that need to be addressed. So do you think that that now more than ever, it's, it's even more uh, necessary now amid crisis than it was when things appeared to be going well three months ago? Absolutely, and 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 if you if you remember back to to before the general election, which feel, feels like a long, long time ago, things weren't going so well. So while we had superb growth and economy uh, and jobs, and um, and there were lots of positives and prosperity in Irish society, there was also huge frustration within the electorate, uh, particularly around housing and health. Uh, climate. So all of those issues bubbled up and we saw the outcome of that in terms of of our election results. So we absolutely have to address these. But one thing is clear, government cannot address these issues alone. And they do need to bring all stakeholders in society along with them to try to look to how we, for example, make that transition to a low carbon economy that Eamon was speaking about um, without jeopardising, for example, our energy security, which which business is concerned Mm. about. So all of those really big questions outside the immediacy of the crisis right but when we when we look to reimagining what we want Ireland to be and how better we want to be in three or four or five years time it is a mechanism that we need to actually put in place now in order to address those issues otherwise we're going to end up with a very a very fragmented uh, public policy environment which I don't believe can deliver the kind of uh, change that we need right now. Colin McGorman you wanted to come back in on that? Yeah, I think it's a really important point, and I completely agree that the the way the way forward, you know, before this and from this has to be in bringing people together as much as possible. But it, it you know, we've heard an awful lot in this crisis about where how we're in this together, and to a large part we are. But it's also noteworthy that many of the groups who have always existed to some degree on the margins of of, of politics and of political decision making and of policy formation, and. Um, they, they are largely left on their own as well. I mean, if you look at what's happening, for instance, in direct provision centres, if you think about, there's a fantastic piece in the Sunday Independent this week that brings to life the voices of people in nursing homes. Mm. If you think about That's people really in spaces, actually, yeah, it's a great, great piece. If you look, if you look at uh, at the at the people who have suffered most during this pandemic, they are very often uh, marginalised groups or groups within society who exist to some degree on the edges of society. So. You know, this this pandemic has brought into really sharp focus the impact of inequality um, uh, uh, within societies. But it's also proven something, and that is the, the degree to which we are interdependent and interreliant. If you think about the pandemic, none of us are safe unless all of us are safe. The state has an obligation to protect marginalized groups. The state has an obligation to those groups, but in the public health context, it has that same obligation to everybody else. Do you think uh, Colin, this... that, that the health obligation uh, is almost being overlooked to a certain amount? Because, I mean, again, as Siobhan said, so much of the papers are talking about the business impact. They're not so much talking about the health issues. And it seems everyone is now so concerned around trying to get the economy back, getting people back to work, trying to get back to the world as it was in January or February. We're overlooking the fact that 24,000 people in Ireland have had COVID-19. About 5,000 of them are still current cases. It's actually possibly more prevalent in society now than it was pre-lockdown. And yet we're, we're concerned about trying to get the economy back up and running, perhaps at the expense of making sure that people are healthy and survive all of this. 
Do you know, I, I don't know if I agree with that, Gavin. I think the focus right now on thinking about how we begin to open up and get back to whatever the new normal is going to be. I'm, I'm not sure that anybody imagines we're going to go back to February. Um, or to life as it was ever again in the way that it was. And I, and I think those are really important issues that we have, to, we have to look at. We have to think about what are the changes that we need to put, put in place. But I think it is reasonable that, that people are trying to think about if we begin to return back to some sort of function economy where people are going to work, how do we do that? It's right and proper that we have that conversation. But we have to do it in a very, very reasonable, considered, engaged way. Colin Murphy has a piece in the Sunday Business Post this week where he's talking about the COVID-19 committee and the important role that it has, to, it has to play. He says it has to be ready to ask hard questions. You know, we're not going to have, you know, they, they say you learn a lot when you apply hindsight. It's going to be a number of years before hindsight is of any use to us as we begin to assess some of the decisions that were made in, in, in uh, the course of the pandemic. Government and governments had to move very, very quickly. I think uh, government here got an awful lot of things right. There are areas where it got things wrong. I've mentioned direct provision already. Mm -hmm. uh, that what happened in nursing homes is already very clear. Those need urgent attention so that we learn the lessons from all of that. And in the case of direct provision, that's still not being get, gotten right. People in direct provision are not able to follow public health guidelines to protect themselves and protect public health today. That's happening in Ireland today. And we saw within within three days, I think last week, a doubling in the number of clusters in direct provision centres. That's an absolute scandal. Uh, yeah. It's a human rights and public health crisis. And we have to address that quickly. Uh, I also but the find COVID, that, find the that COVID... very difficult to understand as well, because I thought that the likes of City West were actually being made available for people who live in settings like that. That if it wasn't possible for them to stay in isolation or to observe the public health advice, that the likes of City West was being made available precisely so that they could do that. And it seems not to be made available to them. That was one of the most extraordinary things I saw around the whole division issue over the last week, where, where a spokesperson or a, a, in response to a question at a press conference, uh, journalists were told that if people in direct vision wanted to be moved out of direct vision centres, they could be moved to City West. Mm. Whilst at the same time, the HSE was writing to people in a direct vision centre that was an active cluster in Cahar Saivin, telling them that they had to restrict themselves for a further two weeks to, to the centre and couldn't leave their rooms and couldn't leave the, 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 uh, uh, the centre at all. By the way, in direct contradiction of public health advice for people who have been in contact with somebody who has been confirmed as, as having tested positive to the virus. So the way that the direct vision has been dealt with, the uh, direct vision issue and people in direct vision has been dealt with is absolutely appalling. Mm, uh, but I do think that's where that's where we now need, I mean, if you if you think back to how, how Rockdust committees can work really effectively, it's where if they come together, get to grips with an issue, really examine it, tease it out, look at the evidence, be guided by evidence. And we've seen the emergence of experts um, um, uh, uh, in the course of this crisis in a way that I think is really welcome. We've listened to expert evidence and we've made policy decisions on the basis of that evidence. But we also need to interrogate those decisions and question whether or not there's other evidence that we need to consider, both in terms of social impact, economic impact, because after all, if we don't have a functioning economy, we don't have the funds available to support society. We can't deliver on rights like health and housing and education. Those are really, really important points. Mm. And I think that's where the COVID-19 committee could really come to the fore. Look at how the Oireachtas Commission on the 8th worked in that regard. It set aside party politics in the main and really focused on the issue. I'd love to see the COVID-19 committee do that so that we now do the kind of interrogation, 
and thinking and robust examination of decisions that helps to inform really effective decisions as we emerge from this, given that we're likely now, as everybody says, to have to live with this virus for a couple of years, probably at least, and we may well see re-emergence of, of, of uh, uh, the virus later yeah, on this year. I think the behind closed doors meeting of the COVID committee during the week doesn't necessarily fill you with a huge amount of confidence there because there was so much uh, private bickering around exactly how to structure the agenda or who to bring in first. Uh, by well, the by, um, let's see how they behave when it goes public, well, Gavin. I mean, there's indeed, nothing like the light indeed. of cameras to get people uh, to behave themselves. Let's see. Uh, also, by the way, uh, Maeve Sheehan is responsible for that special report in today's Sunday Independent well worth picking up a full uh, deep dive into the full experiences of people who are in nursing homes right now and, and how they are concerned around how all of this is being handled. Um, Siobhan, can I go back to you though on the front page of the, the Sunday Business Post and this declaration from Patricia King, the General Secretary of ICTU, making the demand that the previous public sector deal has to be honoured in full to a letter, um, adding $264 million to the existing pay bill. Is that the right thing to do in current circumstances? Because you could say, one, it's the state adding to a deficit which is already going to be huge, but B, you could say it's actually an economic stimulus because it's 300,000 people getting an extra pay bump. Yeah, and and I guess that's that's the principle, right? So so rather than agreeing or disagreeing with ICTU, what I would say is this isn't a time for austerity, right? So what we don't want to do is go back to how we behaved in 2010. And anybody following the media coverage uh, this week of IBEX Reboot Reimagine campaign talks about that. So it talks about the need for borrowing while interest rates are at an all-time low, uh, for investing, uh, for, uh, you know, instilling consumer confidence so we can get behaviours back to the way they were. And this also relates to things like pay and tax and welfare dimensions. Um, the other the other issue with, with um, this piece today in the Business Post is, and I think you, you have to stand back and look again at the kind of society that we want, um, there is a bigger industrial relations picture in in you know, in the context of where we are. Mm. And that is the need to hold our society together. So if by honouring an agreement and fulfilling these public sector pay deals holds the public sector structure together, well, then, you know, it may be a price worth paying for us. And then I suppose the corollary of that is when I look at what's happening in within the private sector and anybody working in business or indeed employed, um, there is a, a feeling of precariousness at the moment. And I don't think it, it would be unfair to say that it's probably going to be the case that in many private sector organisations that pay increases or any kind of rise will be either deferred or abandoned this year and indeed in the future. Uh, and in some cases, we might see pay cuts. Um, so, so you know, again, looking to lessons of the past, uh, we need to ensure that there is some kind of alignment between what's happening within um, public sector pay as it is within private sector pay. More but, but, generally... But given how, how dismal the private sector uh, picture looks to be uh, emerging, then is it the right thing to, to have a, a society of haves and have-nots? No, I think I think equality is crucial across all boards, and and you can hear that from Column. I mean, these are the big societal challenges. You know, the the issue around accommodation and housing, whether it was for for direct provision or other uh, demographics, was was with us long before the crisis. It's just been brought into relief now that we have have this awful um, awful COVID nineteen, which is which is just. Um, I suppose, exaggerating the inequalities we have. But the public sector pay determination is between government and the public sector unions, right? So it's not something that that the private sector is involved in. And, and our view as well is with regard to a social dialogue, that pay determination should not be part of that. So when people think about, uh, people are old enough to remember uh, social partnership last time around, 
what, what we're proposing is not the same. This is a dialogue around some of the big challenges. And when we're, while we're all in this tunnel around COVID and looking at the immediate impact of that, we are forgetting there are other major challenges coming down the track at us very quickly, such as Brexit. I mean, that's looking to be uh, increasingly likely to be disruptive. Um, it's unlikely that the UK will be seeking um, an extension to the transition mm-hmm. period, yeah. given the deadline. We also have the issue of the all-island economy uh, and, and how we handle that. Um, and, and so there are so many really big societal issues that are, are presenting to us as as as, a, as 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 an economy and a society that we have to address that. And so part of what IBEC is putting forward is a very, very ambitious recovery plan. And we've put forward a figure of 50 billion, uh, which is fully costed within our um, campaign, which sets out over 200 recommendations. And I see Brian Keegan on page 15 of the Sunday Business Post was, uh, I think it was a slight jibe for not being simpler in terms of our communications. But <laughs> I, ge- I guess what we're trying to do is set out something really credible that all stakeholders, not just political, can actually look at and say, right, let's let's break this down and see what's doable. But in terms of recovery and and reboot a couple of things are of the essence speed getting an executive in place so getting a government in place so they can actually pass some legislation to provide liquidity to business to enable people to go back to work to provide the kind of consumer confidence and and spending that we need to get things back on track Mm -hmm. to deal with the big societal issues and 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 the kind of issues that that column presented to us around what's happening within accommodation and direct provision centers you know none of these issues can be addressed unless we get people back to work and just on on that piece i guess the roadmap while you know it was the health experts that developed the roadmap, um, and 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 that was an important, I suppose, milestone last week to understand how that was going to take place. I think what is becoming very apparent as the economic crisis takes centre stage is is that roadmap is too elongated, and so needs to be compressed into shorter phases. Looking at how the reopening happens and 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 what the impact is in relation to to the health of our mm, society, yeah. no, huge but I think there's absolutely no reality to looking at a three week phasing uh, and breaking up some sectors, particularly hospitality, over over two or three months. There is way too much interdependence within business uh, to to actually try to to deal with a reopening sure. plan like that. Uh, and that's where the- politics comes back in, and that's where political leadership comes back in, and it's very important that they that that now that the health experts have presented a plan that the political leadership steps back in and actually decides on how best to execute. Um, ordinarily, this lot is about things that are in the papers. But one thing which is remarkable about today's papers, given the scale of what was contained in the report this week, is that so little has been written around some of the, the rampant and systematic uh, abuse of children within the scouting movement. Yeah, it's extraordinary that it hasn't gotten more coverage. It got extensive coverage during the week, obviously, when Ian Elliott's report was sure. published. Uh, um, but yeah, very, very, very little this week as well. I mean, you know, when you look at what that report uh, found, I mean, just just quoting one section from it, sex offenders dominated the leadership of scouting body for decades, the report found. So individuals who had a sexual interest with children rose to positions of authority in legacy scouting organisations and were able to actively prevent known child abusers being, from being removed from, the, uh, um, from those organisations and for abuse to continue. 
that there was the, there was cover up and a failure to report and an almost complete absence of any concern for the young people that were abused. I mean, a really, really shocking report um, just last week. The number of alleged victims now of child abuse has increased to 356 and there are about 275 alleged perpetrators. So you can be confident about one thing. The number of victims is a multiple of the number that's so far been reported or, or that's come forward. And the majority of the abuse occurred between the 1960s and the 1990s. Mm. It's a it's a really, really, really shocking report. And at the back of all of these reports, of course, there's going to be a very large number of people out there whose lives have been significantly blighted by this and who are still living of the impacts uh, of that abuse today. And sure. the impact of that on, on their lives and on their families' lives is going to be huge, particularly when a report like this comes uh, out. Given your experience as a founder of, of the One in Four movement as well, are, are there some things that the scouting movement can learn from how other institutions like the Catholic Church didn't evolve? Is it helpful, for example, the fact that because so much of this, you know, not that it's ever acceptable, but because so much of it is, is in the recent enough past that... The, you know, the reconstitution of the movement, the reconsolidation of new scouting bodies helps to to turn a bit of a page on this. Well, hopefully it does. But I mean, again, the primary responsibility for protecting children and vulnerable people and for responding to serious crime rests with the state. So the state has to make sure that it has laws, policies and practices in place that does everything it reasonably can possibly do to protect children and to respond uh, to these kinds of crimes when they are committed. So that's something that needs to be thought about now. Could the state have intervened more quickly? Should it have? Should there have been indications and signs? Are our child protection practices and policies and laws now robust enough to prevent this happening again in the future? A lot has happened over the last 10 or 15 years, in large part because of what emerged in relation to the Catholic Church and child abuse. Actually, I mean, the, the, the report itself says that the close link between the Catholic Boy Scouts of Ireland, which was one of the legacy bodies, mm. and the Catholic Church meant that some clerical sex founders found what the report calls acceptance of their practices in the scouting bodies during the 1980s and the 1990s. So there's a crossover between the culture of both organisations, the, the Catholic Church itself and then the Catholic Boy Scouts of Ireland, who are part of or one of the main legacy organisations of the of the scouting body that exists now. So massive reform will be necessary. Ian Elliott's done really important work there. Um, you know, I think that Scouting Ireland are going to have to be very, very, very transparent and very upfront about the measures that they're 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 putting in place to try and train change a culture within an organisation that didn't inquire that didn't ask questions, that didn't act, that sought to suppress troubling information rather than go after it and uncover it uh, and have a determined focus on protecting children rather than protecting abusers and the institution with that, that they led. Sure. I'm sure there could be uh, quite a few listeners this morning who may be affected by this. We'll tweet some of the details to helplines. you find them on twitter.com slash gavriley. I'll tweet them in just a few minutes' time. Uh, Aidan Regan, by the way, uh, sometime contributor to this show, says that talking about the private sector as a homogenous group makes absolutely no sense. It's over one and a half million people working in jobs ranging from IT, financiers, tech managers, hotel workers, taxi drivers, advertisers, consultants, and someone else chips in and says uh, farmers as well. Uh, Siobhan, I don't know if that's a uh, necessarily directed at yourself or myself maybe both of us were treating them as, as homogenous but one concern which is homogenous across all of the private sector and indeed the public as well is the question marks over childcare and there's a lot written today an editorial in the business post for example no return to business as usual on childcare it, it's difficult to see how a lot of the the businesses that are provided for in the roadmap can really get back to business while there still isn't a childcare solution which is sustainable for those parents 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely true. And it, it is tied up in the whole debate that we saw yesterday around the reopening of schools, particularly primary schools. You know, the, the reality for, for many, many people is they may be, you know, remote working at home and trying to, to mind kids or indeed they, they may be out of a job and at home with kids with no income. So in order to reopen the economy, we certainly need childcare to be back up and running. Um, two things strike me on that front. Um, first of all, I, I have no doubt that that uh, you'll have the, the black market re-emerging on that front. So you will have child minders uh, coming back in as individuals minding families mm. uh, over the summer months. And, you know, and it already happens, but you might see it in, in greater numbers as the childcare workers in crashes don't have a workplace to return to. Um, the second related point is around schools right so so there is some debate around and pressure particularly from media around the reopening of schools and now we've seen these um petitions from parents uh, the difficulty with the reopening of schools is i just don't see that happening in light of the cancellation of the leaving cert it would it would feel contradictory to open up primary schools having having cancelled the leaving cert so i don't see that happening um, but i do think regardless of of what opens whether it's it's crashes or schools and um, that really it'll become it'll be incumbent on on parents to make a decision whether they're happy to return their children into that environment or not um, i think more importantly looking to to the future it's probably an area that really needs some focus from from the next government around how we improve uh, the quality of our childcare and deliver greater funding for that sector um, it's something that has been really crucial in terms of female participation rates in, in the in the labour market, and they're incredibly low in Ireland, mm. despite huge investment on huge educational attainment of our of, of females in Ireland. So I guess it's it's just looking at that kind of reimagining piece of Ireland. It's one of the areas that I think once we get past this reopening phase, uh, and hopefully it'll be it'll be quicker than 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 we see in the in the roadmap, that we need to look at a sustainable funding model for. for for childcare, and that re- requires a kind of a more effective and streamlined model. Yeah, and um, particularly a sector do that, have... that doesn't revolve on, on grandparents as being the failsafe as well, because Absolutely. they've taken up the capacity Absolutely. for so long. Uh, we're out of time. My thanks to both of you for joining me this morning. Siobhan Masterson, who's the Head of Corporate Affairs at IBEC, and Colin McGorman, Executive Director of Amnesty International Ireland and founder of One in Four.